Good morning. How are we doing? Amen. Amen. We're good to, good to be together. Great to be with you. Welcome, Pennsburg, and we're believing we're connecting with the Pennsburg campus. Everybody say, good morning. Good morning. Great to be together. Good to be with you. I tell you, yesterday was, was really a fantastic men's gathering breakfast, and you're in for a blessing right now. Our first service, uh, God really did touch our hearts, and he reminded us once again how good he is, how faithful he is, how loving he is, and how gracious he is, and he never gives up on us. Aren't you thankful for that? He never, ever gives up on us. Amen. Amen. So, Teresa. Amen. So, I got to meet Tony uh, several years ago. We're on a women's team together, and I instantly just fell in love with her. And she told me her story, and I was just so blown away by God's redemptive grace. And so I couldn't wait to have them here. And you're going to so enjoy hearing how God has used both Tony and Chris. Chris in his own ministry, and then Tony sort of has her own thing. And then they have beautiful children that are arriving here at any moment. They're getting into our building here any moment, right? And you will just enjoy because if anything's ever happened in your life where you're like, there is no redemption for that, I don't know how God will ever use it. God will use it. As long as it's placed in his hand, he will use it. And he will bring glory and honor out of those things that we give to him. He washes them, he cleanses them, and he makes them usable for his glory and his honor. So welcome Tony and Chris McFadden with us. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with, with each of you this morning. Uh, yesterday morning was a great, great event at the men's uh, breakfast event, and <clears throat> I had the opportunity to speak specifically on the topic of the stigma that's associated with addiction. Um, my, my role that I have in, in my ministry work is I serve as the president and CEO of Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge. Uh, many people know that just the name of Teen Challenge makes it a lot easier, but the main age demographic that we serve in our organization is 18 and older. Uh, but one of the things that I really wanted to highlight in the talk yesterday was that we are created in the image of God and that each and every one of us has inherent rights of, for dignity and, and things like just basic respect. And my message from yesterday was that we need to be careful about the way that we talk about people that are dealing with addiction. And not only that, but just anybody who's dealing with anything, because we are first and foremost created in the image of God, and that is the thing that we need to always remember when we're communicating, especially when we talk about topics like addiction. And I didn't talk much about my personal story uh, yesterday. I, I used it in a couple uh, places for examples, but today uh, I want to share much more about uh, my own personal journey uh, in addiction, and then my, my wife is also going to be sharing uh, her story in a different kind of way. But the thing I always say is that I married way super up, <clears throat> and that's why she's going second, because she's the closer. You all laugh now, but you'll all, you'll all agree later. Uh, so just to give you a brief rundown of 
my story and my life. So I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania. Uh, as a kid, I had, uh, I had no faith upbringing whatsoever. Uh, Christmas and Easter were about Easter bunnies and Santa Claus and, and stuff like that. There was, no, there was no attachment to any sort of faith growing up. Uh, my last memory of my biological father was I was probably somewhere around like seven years old, and my little sister was five, so you imagine we're just tiny little things. And he dropped us off in my mom's driveway with our bicycles, and then I never, I never saw him again. So grew up primarily with my mother. She's the one who took care of me for uh, my entire life. And uh, it's crazy to say that even seeing how my life is, has been transformed by the Lord, that hers, she still isn't, isn't coming around to that and just thinks that, uh, Chris, you're a great guy and you did a great job. And I'm like, Mom, come on, you're, miss, you're missing the point. But as we were little, uh, me and my sister, we were really uh, caught up in big time into this, the sports culture. That was, that's what we did as kids. We, I was an athlete. Uh, my sister was the same way. <clears throat> and my mom, uh, like I said, was always there from the time I was a, a little kid. But that's the, that's the sort of life that I began to, to develop as, as a young person, which was sports, sports first, and school is something you have to do in order to play sports. I continued that path and that trajectory for, for quite some time. Uh, but as a teenager, I began to recognize just the, the self-centered ways that I had begun to develop. And my mom told me this. I didn't share this in the first service, but my mom told me, probably, um, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe 10 years ago, that she didn't discipline me when I was a little kid because she felt bad about me not having a dad growing up. So she really took it, just took it easy on me. And that really helped me to start developing some patterns that could have probably been adjusted if, if, there, were, if there was a different way growing up. Um, but I often say, and, and I talk with Tony about this, is that sports became almost my religion. You know, we, we have, every one of us has a worldview. When we wake up in the morning and we open our eyes, <clears throat> and we all filter reality through something. Uh, when I was in my addiction, I filtered my reality through how I was going to be physically well with substances. But as a little kid before all that stuff, I grew up and my worldview was shaped through the old school ESPN Sports Center back when I was a kid. Some of you know, know what I'm talking about. I don't really watch it that much anymore. It's changed. It's like a, it's like a politics show now a little bit. And not a, and not a good one either. Uh, but a couple of the regrets and probably one of the, the main regrets I have from that time of playing sports in high school and, and just focusing just on me uh, there was a girl that I had met in high school, and we were dating, and then before you know it, we, we ended up in a crisis pregnancy situation, and we decided to uh, terminate and have an abortion. And where I was at in my life at that point, um, being focused on here, uh, my response to that was just to flee, run away. And that was always something that was carrying just in the back of my mind for, for years. And I could, I, could never, I could never shake that. Uh, but when I went to college, I ended up going to junior college for a year. And I was able to play football for a year. And then I ended up going and playing football at a different school the next year. 
And it was during this point where my life started to really head in one direction on a, a really sharp trajectory. And that's because I was the starting quarterback, and in the tenth play of the game, <coughs> I remember there was a little slant pattern on the right, and the coach would always say, if it's not there, just throw it out of bounds. And I didn't listen, as you know from the beginning of my story here already, as I wasn't very good at listening. Um, so I just kind of ran back up just to try to get to the line of scrimmage. Uh, look, I mean, I wasn't going to get very far. You're supposed to laugh at that one. But I got tackled awkwardly and ripped my collarbone off my throwing arm. And that's where things really started to get nasty because then uh, I ended up going to the hospital. And this is back in the early 2000s. If you think of when you started hearing about the opioid epidemic, it didn't happen until like 2015-ish. <coughs> so in the very early 2000s, this was happening, and it was happening a lot. But it wasn't something that was really reported on in the media like it is now. Pretty much every day now, there's some sort of a story, whether you're reading or you're watching, that has something to do with the overdose deaths, uh, overdose deaths that are happening throughout our country. In fact, just since the year 2000 up until now, our country has seen over a million, a million overdose deaths in the past just 22, uh, really 21 years and a little bit of change now until 22. And we all know that through the pandemic that the overdose death rates skyrocketed. There's no joke. But one of the things that you can really learn through that is that addiction does not discriminate. And that's something that I would guess that everybody in here, that you either are dealing with an addiction, you know somebody who's dealing with an addiction, or you know somebody who knows somebody that's dealing with an addiction. Just statistically speaking, that's the way that it ends up shaking out at the end, at the end of the day, which is quite, quite a shame, honestly. But that also led me into other things like legal troubles. I had gotten myself into quite a bit of trouble. But the worst part, <coughs> not just the addiction part, not the legal troubles, even though externally those things look like the worst part, the worst part is when I came to that internal place of hopelessness. And I, and I share this very often, that it's very hard for me after telling the story for talking almost 15 years, that I still can't really define to somebody what it means to feel hopeless. Unless you've been to a place where you were truly hopeless, you don't really understand what it means to, uh, how, how to really describe it other than I was, I was accepting of just where things were. And I gave up. And I just said, this is just the way things are going to be. When I referenced at the beginning the whole topic on the stigma that's associated with addiction, term, terminology and things that we use, when you hear words like addict or junkie, alcoholic, these different types of, of words that are like identifiers in somebody's life, I never realized how important it was to not use those words because I was one of those people during this time, during these dark days for myself, where I was the person that believed that about myself and those things further contributed to that feeling of hopelessness because I believed that about myself. I was just going to be an addict or a junkie 
the rest of my life. And I got to the place where I just accepted it. I owned it, and it was just, it is what it is. And I was only like 25 years old. Addiction often is associated with this idea of hiding in the shadows. If you're in the recovery community or you, you know anybody who's in that, that's kind of a, a common thing that you hear people talk about. And when people are hiding in the shadows, it's the people that feel stigmatized. And they're the ones who are kind of hiding from whatever the topic may be. I also think that the idea of hiding in the shadows is directly tied to why people that are dealing with these types of things only come out at night. <coughs> think about it. If you're in an area where you shouldn't be during daytime, you definitely shouldn't be there during night. And whenever you hear of certain things that happen that are bad, have you ever been watching the news and said to yourself, I have, what are they doing outside that late? Why does that happen? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with this idea of, of stigma. And people are hiding in the shadows. It's dark outside. And you don't have to, like, see yourself that much. And you go out when everybody else is sleeping or hiding. So for me, the glimmer of hope. And this, for me, was the life-transforming thing that happened in my life. Is It's not going to sound so life-transforming when I tell you what it was that did it. Was I got arrested and went to jail. I know, it's, it's funny now looking back, right? But at the time, it definitely wasn't that way. <laughs> but I can tell you that the glimmer of hope came when I finally got locked up. And I've been, I've been through this a lot, but I got locked up, and I was given an opportunity. You don't think of it that way when you're detoxing all by yourself on a floor inside of a jail. I can tell you that's not the preferred method for detox. Withdrawal management is not supposed to be done. <laughs> on the floor of a jail cell. But that's exactly what happened for me. And I was locked up for a couple of months, and I went before a judge, and I was given an opportunity to go to this organization called Teen Challenge. Now, I had never really heard of Teen Challenge, only for like a month leading up to that, because I was simply looking for a way to get myself out of trouble. I was pretty much willing to do whatever it took to not have to go to jail again, to go to prison. For me, the worst part of being in jail <coughs> is sitting behind that glass where you got the metal running through it and you can't really see, but you know that there's life happening out there and I ain't part of it. So for me, it came down to one thing, and this may sound silly, but the question for me was, can I go outside? It may seem like something that we take, take for granted. And the answer was yes, and so was mine. Sign me up. I just want to go outside. So I went to this place, the Teen Challenge Program, out near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And while I was out there, for about two months, I was hearing this gospel message every single day. And the verses that we would talk about all the time was found in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and it ran through Romans 4, chapter 5. <clears throat> but the most impactful verses in that whole text there that brought me to faith was in Romans 1.18 to, to 2.5. And it's not the greatest place where you would go to find the gospel because it starts talking about being 
insolent, haughty, boastful, a hater of God, being disobedient to parents, I always thought was odd to be mixed in there, filled with malice, envy, strife. And I started to finally see that, yeah, I could intellectually understand that I had those issues. The disobedient to parents thing was a little odd to me how it fit in there until I realized that all offenses are sinful and, and they're, they're, they're an offense to a holy God. And then there was another one, and I forgot to mention this one before. There was like what I have come to call the universal catch-all phrase. If you can't identify with any of that stuff, it's said that we're inventors of evil. And I said, boy, it's kind of hard to get out of the grasp of any one of those things, but now it's, it's given me the catch-all to everything. So it was at that point where I had felt like I was in that story with the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you know the story where the tax collector can't even raise his hands. Just says he just put his, just put his head down and, and you could see him kind of like this. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what happened to me on January 1st, 2007, in a tiny, tiny little chapel out at this Teen Challenge program out right outside of, of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was at that point where I turned, you know, repentance, the idea of repentance is I'm going this way, and now I'm going that way. A lot of people will talk about it and be a 360, but we don't want to go from here and right back here. We, we want a 180. Let's do a 180. And that's where repentance and faith became a real part of my life. And it was from that very point that my life was now on a whole new trajectory. And that whole feeling of hopelessness was long, long gone. And the word that you used at the beginning of the service, Pastor, was whole. Our vision statement at Teen Challenge is bringing wholeness to the hopeless. And I began to understand a fresh and anew what it meant to be whole and filled with hope. So when I finished the program, I had a super exciting job. I was an intern, and I was the lead housekeeper, and I got to clean toilets for 200 guys and take out the trash. And I did that every single day. Thank you. That's good. But then I began to progress through different leadership roles. I began to uh, complete my academic programs. And I finally finished my, my undergrad degree back in 2010, uh, right, right before our first uh, son, Isaac, was, was born. And then I went on to finish my master's degree from a, there's a little seminary right in Myerstown, Pennsylvania called Evangelical Seminary, really good school. And then eventually finished my MBA in healthcare management uh, just about two, two years ago. And thank you. <clears throat> but I began to take on more leadership roles within the organization. And in 2015, which is kind of, it's kind of crazy to think that's almost seven years. Uh, in 2015, I was 34 years old. I didn't really know much about anything. I thought I knew a lot about a lot. Now I know, you know, we get older, we know less and less. It's one of those things. Um, but I became the first graduate in the history of our organization to become the president and CEO of our corporation. <laughs> I reference this in the first service, that I point those things out 
to, to magnify the grace of God because if God can transform and use a knucklehead like me, he can utilize anybody for his purposes. So God is good. And our organization, Pennsylvania Adult and Teen Challenge, has a whole lot to offer for anybody that you would know who's dealing with, with addiction issues. Pastor knows how to get a hold of me, and, and you've got a great, uh, a great pastoral team here who really cares about you. So anytime you would need anything, if you needed to get a hold of me or anything like that when it comes to our organization, please feel free to, uh, to talk to, to Pastor. And, and, and we want to be a resource to you. We've got multiple program services. We now have a detox program. We've got clinical counseling programs. We've got outpatient programs. And we're not very far away. We're right in Berks County is our, is our home base. So we want to be a resource for you. And we know that God is in the business of bringing about redemption and restoration. So at this time, I'm going to invite my wife, as I mentioned, the closer. She's going to come up and she's going to uh, share with us. So thank you so much. Hi, good morning. I never grow tired of hearing my husband's story. It's always a reminder of how gracious God has been to us um, when we did not deserve it. Um, I also love that on completely different spectrums, we are promoting life from womb to tomb. And I just love that I'm on the side of uh, promoting life for those who cannot fight for themselves, literally cannot defend themselves. And the fact that God would use me, even though my past says one thing, he doesn't view me as my past. And so for all of you, I want you also to know that your past does not have to determine your future, but that the Lord can elevate those things and bring life to other people. That is what the gospel does. It set, sets us free so the enemy can no longer use those things against us, but we start walking in step with who God created us to be. It is powerful. And we are unstoppable when we understand who we are in Christ, regardless of what our past might try to say to us. So I am a pro-life activist and speaker, and I speak all over the place um, promoting life and why we should be defending pre-born babies. Now, I know before, there was years where I didn't believe that. But just as Chris said, when God grabs a hold of our hearts, our worldview completely changes. And one of the things I would say is that God's perspective of life in the womb should define how we value life in the womb. Because he is the one, he is the creator of life. Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're not a mistake. I know circumstances can look like the child is a mistake. But the greatest human rights issue we are facing in our country is abortion. Over 62 million babies have lost their lives through the act of abortion. And we're coming up soon in June of Roe versus Wade 
having the potential to have that overturned. That's an amazing thing. We should clap for that. <laughs> because you know what? The church is still going to need to be the church. But my prayer is that women who will continue to face unplanned pregnancies, even if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, the church still needs to be the church because I pray women would run to the church and not away from it. And this is why I'm always so honored that I'm able to speak and be um, a vessel when it comes to this topic because my senior year in high school, I faced an unplanned pregnancy. And I remember walking into the abortion clinic with my boyfriend and my best friend. And when I told my best friend I was pregnant, she, the first thing she said to me was, you can't keep it. And when we told my boyfriend, he was like, you don't want to keep it, do you? Those are the only two voices that I heard. Here's the thing with the church. We can bring hope in those situations. We can bring life into those situations. But when you're not walking with Christ, you're not surrounded with people who are walking with Christ, they're going to elevate the fear and tell you why you need to do what you're doing. Obviously, I was fearful. Those are real emotions. I'm graduating in five months. I was known as the good one in my family. So no one was going to expect that this would be the position I was in. And I believe the lies that if I had this abortion, my boyfriend would stay with me, my parents would never find out about my secret, and life would go along as planned. Let me tell you, when you take the life of your own, it changes you. There is nothing normal about taking the life of your own child. I don't care what kind of euphemisms they use, women's right to choose, reproductive health care. What is, what is an abortion? Abortion is ending the life of an innocent human being in a mother's womb. And it changes you. I walked into that place, laid on the table as the nurse gave me a sonogram. And I realized the screen was faced away from me. Now I know they do that on purpose. They do that on purpose because they don't want you to see the screen, first of all. Their other reason for doing that is because they want to know how far along you are so they know how much they need to charge you for the abortion. But for some reason, I asked if I could see the screen. You know what? That really aggravated the nurse. You really shouldn't see that, was her tone with me. And I said, well, I would really like to see it. So she turns the screen around, and before I could say a word, she said, see, it's nothing. It's just the size of a pea. She lied to me in that moment. I was seven weeks along. If you know anything about fetal development, which I didn't at that time, that meant that my child already had a heartbeat. That meant at conception, this child had its own unique DNA that would never, ever be created again. That is the blueprint for this child's entire life. How tall they're going to be, their eye color, their skin tone. And she said it was nothing. I was given what's called the chemical abortion pills. 
if you, this has been a hot topic actually now, even though this was 1999. Um, there are, the FDA has lifted the restrictions on chemical abortion pills where a girl could just get these through the mail now. Never have to see a doctor, never see an ultrasound. 24 women that we know of have died taking these very same pills. Because we, when we allowed Roe versus Wade to pass, a I believe a spirit of death was let loose on our nation. So I was given those same pills. I took the first set, and if you don't know what these do, what they do is they block the hormone progesterone so the baby detaches from the uterus and starves to death and dies. 24 to 48 hours later, I'm giving a... I was told to take the second set of pills that they have given me. They said, in the comfort of your home. They're giving this to a teenage girl, telling her to take these pills at home. And said, you would have some heavy bleeding, and it will expel the pregnancy. I walked out of that place, and remember the lies I said I believed, that my boyfriend would stay with me, I could keep this secret, and my life would go along as planned. Boyfriend breaks up with me the day after he goes to the abortion clinic with me. I take the second set of pills. They don't really work. I call them, and of course, they're not as nice to me this time. Why? They already got my money. Just take the second set of pills. You'll be fine. That's basically what they said to me. I take the second set of pills. Something happens, but not a lot, and I just recalled what the nurse said. Oh, well... She said it's just the size of a pea. Maybe this is it. Two months later, I'm sitting in school, and I start get, getting the most excruciating pains I've ever felt in my entire life. So bad that I can't even walk to the nurse's office by myself. And I'm not saying this to be graphic just to be graphic, but this is the reality of first-term abortions. I go into the bathroom in the nurse's office, and there are blood clots the size of my fist leaving my body. Why? Because I'm experiencing hem severe hemorrhaging. If you've ever seen the movie Unplanned, they did not exaggerate that scene. My mom takes me home, thinks I just have bad cramps. I go upstairs, going from the bathroom to my bed, from the bathroom to my bed for hours. This is what the abortion industry calls freedom. This is supposed to be empowering women. Because what I did was I stuffed that all down, acted like it didn't happen, and ran to whatever would make me feel good in the moment. I started drinking more. I kept going from relationship to relationship to relationship until one relationship stopped me in my tracks. Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful, so thankful that God always can see the potential in us. And he will run after it. He's pursuing some of you right now that aren't giving everything to him. He's pursuing you right now because he loves you too much to keep you where you are. Why are we trying, why was I or any of us trying to live out a life when the one who created us knows what we've been created for? And we're trying to do that ourselves and it never goes right. I was running for so long. 
I ended up getting saved through Campus Crusade for Christ, a ministry at college at Westchester University. I remember going back to my dorm room after seeing 200 students praising God on a Thursday night, which was Thirsty Thursday, you know, on college campus. Most people are out drinking, and they're spending their time with the Lord. And what I realized in that moment was they had something I didn't have, and I wanted it. And, you know, a lot of times God just wants a heart that's desperate. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all your ducks in a row and clean yourself up. He just wants a desperate heart because that's where he can work. And I remember being in my room, crying out to the Lord, and I said some childlike prayer, and I really believe the Lord honored that prayer, and he began to reshape my whole worldview. And long story short, um, as I said before, he doesn't waste anything. He will not waste the pain and even the wrongs that the very things that I did that put him on that cross he is now using for his glory, which is amazing. A few years after that, I start working for a crisis pregnancy center. And I would go into schools and speak on saving sex for marriage. And it wasn't something that I was just telling teens to do. I was living that out myself because I'm a believer at now. That I, not only was I respecting myself, but I had, I had a future that I was looking at, and I knew the decisions I was making right now was going to affect that. And one of the hardest things was going through post-abortion counseling. I went through an eight-week Bible study called Forgiven and Set Free by Linda Cochran. And basically, it was sitting in my suffering and allowing God to heal in those moments of acknowledging what I did and how wicked my heart was apart from him. But his cross was enough to heal me. And he was not allowing the abortion to define who I was. He was going to say, you know what, I'm going to use you so you could set other women free who have walked through this and to help those to never take that same path that it's not worth it. Choosing life will always benefit over death. So as I'm sharing this, obviously it's not always easy <laughs> to be vulnerable and share your mistakes, but I saw God using it. I saw God um, setting people free. And at the time, you know, I wanted to be married. All my friends were getting married, all this stuff. So, you know, I got saved at 21, you know, 22, 23, 24, 25. I'm like, okay, God, where's he at? Um, he's working on him. So, <laughs> but I didn't know who I was going to marry. I had no clue. But I remember telling teenagers, you know what, listen, I have a promise ring on my finger. Not because it's a trendy thing to do, but... Be, there's a purpose behind it because I realize as I have high standards, I'm waiting for someone who has high standards too. I want to wait until I'm married. Therefore, that weeds a lot of people out. <laughs> you know, when you have high standards, you'll start to meet people who have those standards too. And if that means waiting a little while, I'd rather do that. And I'm not going to hide my past from my future husband. 
I want to work on who I am now so that I'm whole when I'm at the altar. Because here's the thing. Men were always my idol, and now Jesus was my foundation. And I didn't need to be in a relationship in order to be whole and have worth and have value. Now, if marriage was a part of that, it was great, but I did not. I loved how I was living my life. So little do I know, um, for about maybe a couple of years, um, the same boy that I had that abortion with, he was actually looking for me. And he found me through, um, you know, Facebook. And <laughs> he found me on there. We, I actually decided to meet with him. He had said that, you know, God had changed his life and there were some people he needed to apologize to. So I decided to meet with him. And I remember sitting across from him from dinner at dinner and him saying to me, the reason I broke up with you, the reason I left that relationship was because I didn't want to have to face the fact that we ended the life of our child. And in that moment, I realized abortion does not just affect women, that it affects men. Because men in this room, young men in this room, God has called you to protect and to lead. And I realized, and he realized in this moment, I didn't protect you, nor did I protect our child. I mean, praise God for real men like that. Because obviously that took a lot of guts to come back and share that with me. And then less than a year later, he asked me to be his wife. It's him. <laughs> I think we have a picture of our wedding day. Get put up. There we are. I know, you don't want to like him in the beginning, right? <laughs> but... Um, God didn't have to do that. I mean, he is a God of redemption and restoration. He, I would have been fine with him just rescuing me and putting me on the path that he put me on, but he goes above and beyond what we can ever think or ask for. And then on our wedding day, we were able to honor our unborn baby. We had lit an extra candle, and we let our guests know that we were lighting this extra candle to, to acknowledge their life because we believe every time we share our testimony that our child is no longer a statistic, that God is using our child's life to help others go down a different path or um, walk down the healing path. And then the Lord was so gracious gracious to, per, to give us these four Babies right there, and so good to us. <laughs> and so now the Lord has not stopped there. Um, I've been speaking all over, speaking. I just recently spoke at the National March for Life in Washington, D.C., the most <laughs> people I've ever spoken in front of in my life, but obedience. It's the little things. Obeying him along the way. Watch what he will do. For those of you who may be sitting here who know someone who's had an abortion or you yourself has had an abortion, God forgives. His blood was enough. His death, death and resurrection is enough that your identity is not that. Allow, allow him to heal you 
through those things. Um, as I mentioned before, some of the resources, uh, Forgiven and Set Free, a Bible study that maybe your local pregnancy center has that. Um, there's also one for men as well, for fathers. Um, also, just recently, it's coming out, well, it is out. <laughs> you can start to purchase it soon on Amazon. I don't know if I have that picture. I did write a book about my story that has more of the details. It's called Redeemed, My Journey After Abortion. And that's also a resource to even give to others um, who may be considering abortion or um, needs to go through the healing process of that. But I just want to um, end in praying over you as a community because, again, Roe versus Wade is coming up. And the church is going to have to rise up in a different way. And we cannot be silent on this issue. We cannot be silent any longer on this issue. We can't just let the pregnancy resource centers do this. We need to be a voice in this as well. So before we end, I would just love to pray over you as a congregation. Jesus, thank you that you are the giver of life. Lord, that you love to protect life. And Lord, your word tells us in Proverbs 31 that we are to speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves and to, to defend the destitute, Lord. God, would we be a voice for those who struggle with addiction, that we don't label them? And would we also protect the ones in the womb who cannot fight for, the, for themselves? God, let the church rise and be the church. Let us bring hope where there's hopelessness. God, would you help us to know exactly how we can use the gifts that we, you have planted in each and every one of us to further your, our kingdom call on this earth, Lord. We live in a lost and dying world that is longing, longing to be set free, and we have the keys to freedom. So, Jesus, would you rain down on Morning Star Church? Would you help them to see where they're called, Lord, in this fight? I pray over the leadership. I pray over those who um, just have these creative skills to get the, the word out to their community, Lord. Father, those whose hearts are stirring right now, Lord, would you meet them in that? And I pray over those who may have had abortions in their past, Lord. Would you begin that healing, Lord God, if they haven't started to walk through it already? Would you let them know they are loved, that there is grace and mercy for them, Lord? I pray that the enemy would no longer have a foothold. Jesus, would you set your church afire and free, God? We need you, Lord. We need you. We can do nothing apart from you. I pray you would receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory, God. Our testimonies, they're yours. They are yours. Would you use them as you please? In Jesus' name.
Yeah. 